This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Sam, Amara, Caleb, Lydia, and Caleb. And yes, I did just say Caleb twice, just like last time I mentioned Sam twice and for the same reason. It's actually two different Calebs. You'll have to guess which one is which. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, and then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. So let's get started. In our first segment, I'm going to answer a couple of questions from Sam and Amara. We'll start with Sam. Here's his question. Why was the horse in Zechariah 1 a red horse? Sam is referring to the prophet Zechariah's series of night visions, which we've been covering in our sermon series over the past few weeks. And in the very first vision, which is in Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah sees horsemen. He sees, first of all, a man riding on a red horse. And this man turns out to be quite important. He's the commander of the heavenly hosts, all the other horsemen who are gathered there. And he's referred to as the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh. Scholars call this angel a Christophany. And Christophany is just a fancy word that means a vision of Jesus Christ before his incarnation, so before his birth in the gospel narratives, when you see the angel of Yahweh acting in the Old Testament, we understand that as a vision of Jesus before he's actually come and, and taken on flesh to dwell among us. And we see this because the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament does a lot of things that are Jesus things. In hindsight, when we look back, we recognize this is the kind of thing that Jesus does. Now, that happens in particular in these visions in Zechariah 3, when the angel of Yahweh is involved in taking away the iniquity of the people, which, of course, is exactly what Jesus came into the world to do. Now, in this particular vision, the very first vision, there are a series of horsemen. A number of horses are mentioned, and, and different colors of horses are mentioned as well. There's three sort of categories of horse color here. There's red, there's sorrel, and there's white. Now, even today, if you're familiar with horses, you know that some of these colors are normal colors for horses. Sorrel is a kind of horse that you'll find these days, and white horses, although they're rare, are also found today as well. So there's nothing unusual about seeing a white horse or a sorrel-colored horse. But if you saw a red horse, that would be pretty wild, because we don't just see red horses riding around out in nature. You have to remember, though, that this prophecy of Zechariah wasn't written originally in English. It was written in Hebrew, and in ancient Hebrew, the way that they described things, including colors, wasn't the same 
as the way we describe them now. It could be a little bit different than modern terminology. And this is one of those instances where the Hebrew expression is a little bit different, but it's not intending to denote a strange or bizarre color of horse. It's just in Hebrew, they designated those colors a little bit differently. So if you read commentaries on the book of Zechariah, they'll tell you that the red horses that are being referred to here are not strange, uh, like flame-colored horses, but that red word is used to describe uh, what we in English might refer to as brown horses or dark brown horses. So the red horses are probably dark brown or are, are brown horses that Zechariah sees. The sorrel horses are kind of a coppery color, and the white ones are, well, they're white. Now, I realize this can be a little bit confusing, so all you need to know is that in that vision, the colors of the horses are natural colors. They're not meant to signify something strange or supernatural about those particular horses. Our next question is from Amara, who asks, what is your favorite song? Now, I have to say it first, as always, whenever you ask my favorite anything, that's a difficult question to answer because usually I have a lot of favorites. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that I like at, at different times in life. They might mean uh, more to me. And that's often the case with the Psalms in particular. I think those of us who read and love the Psalms will have certain Psalms that we gravitate towards, but at different parts of life, different trials, different uh, problems, we might find ourselves feeling especially spoken to by a particular psalm. If you remember, at the beginning of the pandemic last year, I preached a sermon series on the book of Psalms. We kind of jumped around and looked at a number of psalms. Uh, we covered Psalm 13, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 16 and 31, Psalm 20, Psalm 8, Psalm 39, Psalm 23, and 24, and then Psalm 110, 124, 126, and finally 122. Now, you can tell by the fact that those numbers are not in order that we were kind of floating around and looking at different themes, but we were turning to the book of Psalms for comfort. And that's a good reason to go to the Psalms because the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. They're the songs that God has given us to sing. So in those psalms, there is one that has always been a particular favorite of mine. I mean, there are some psalms I think everybody knows, everyone can quote, like the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and of course, those words come to you at certain times. But, but the psalm right after that, Psalm 24, is one that I have always loved. And you will recognize Psalm 24 because this is one that occasionally we use as a call to worship at the beginning of our services at Grace. See if these words sound familiar to you. This is starting in, in uh, Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. One of the reasons I love that psalm is that every time I hear it, I get goosebumps. I can imagine myself at the temple as this song is being sung. You can picture for yourself and your mind the different parts as one part of the the audience or the, the worshipers cry out, who is this king of glory? And then another part answers, the Lord strong and mighty. And, and we have used this psalm in our worship in the same way. And that connection that takes us in the 21st century all the way back to, to 2,000 years and more into the past, that really speaks to me. And that, that's one of those things that I love about Psalm 24. I will say this, though. After preaching that sermon series, especially during the pandemic, I discovered a new favorite psalm, one that I've really thought about and and reflected on quite a bit, and that is not Psalm 24, but Psalm 124. That's the one that begins like this, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When I preached on Psalm 124, one of the stories that I told is the way that that psalm became a kind of anthem during the Reformation. And the reason I love that is because it's not a a battle cry. It's not a a sort of proud, boastful, we are victorious kind of song. It's just the opposite. It's people saying that if it had not been for the Lord, then we would have been lost. We would have been swallowed up. Our hope is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, and I love the way that that the psalm encourages the people of God to make this song their own. So if you ask me at a different time, I may have a different answer. But right now, when I think about psalms that that mean a lot to me personally, Psalm 24 and Psalm 124 are are two of the, the most important in my life right now. Now it's time for the big question. Today, our big question was asked by Caleb, and it has to do with all the different translations of the Bible. Here it is. Why are there so many versions of the Bible and not just two, like a modern one and an old-fashioned one? All right, Caleb, that's a great question, and there's a lot of stuff in there that we'll, we'll try to address. But first things first. The original manuscripts of the Bible, obviously, were not written in English. They were written in Hebrew, they were written in Greek. So Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. Now, it's possible for you to study Hebrew and study Greek and then read the Bible in those languages, 
without having to rely on an English Bible at all. And there are people who do this. In fact, in seminary, when you train to become a pastor, you have to learn at least enough Hebrew and Greek to be able to navigate around in the Hebrew and Greek Bibles, even though it's pretty rare for you to become fluent in Hebrew and Greek the way that you would be, for example, in English. So that's one thing. We have to understand that when we cite a verse in the English Bible, what we're quoting is a translation of the original. So translation is necessary for most of us to be able to understand God's word. But there is a problem with translation. Here it is. So the words in one language are not the exact equivalent of the words in another language. Right? A word that means one thing in English might mean the same thing in Hebrew, but also some other things. And you can't just replace the Hebrew word with an English word that means exactly the same thing and call it a day. So translation is a little bit harder than that. Sometimes there are no exact matches word for word, so that if you want to say something in English, you have to use different words than would have been used in Hebrew. Sometimes more words are necessary to say the same thing in English as you would in Hebrew. And often the grammar is very different. So if you were to translate the original literally, the words would be in a completely different order, they would be all turned around, and their relationship to one another would be very different than it would be in English. So again, all that to say, translation's pretty complicated because you not only have to know like what word means this in another language, you also have to understand how the sentences go together, how people use you know, one word to mean one thing, but also sometimes, depending on the context, something entirely different. So there's a lot of knowledge that goes into translation. Now, the reason why we have so many different translations of the Bible is because of that imprecision, because of that difficulty. So people are always trying to improve on the English translation, improve on ways of, of making the translation say what the Hebrew and the Greek says as closely as possible. And of course, there are many different ideas about how to do that. So some are very literal. Some translations try to give you like a sense of what the original words would have been like, whereas others are much more conversational. And they're not really trying to give you like the, the arrangement of the words. They're just trying to give you a sense of what the words mean. And both of those choices are legitimate and, and, and can be helpful. At the same time, though, in every translation, you have to be careful because sometimes assumptions that you make about the English may not really be reflected in the original. It can be a good translation. It just doesn't quite mean what you think it means. And that can be a problem. And that's one of the reasons why people can be so frustrated. There are so many different translations of the Bible. Now, you mentioned two options, like, why don't we just settle on, on two? We could have a modern Bible, and we can have an old-fashioned Bible. Well, no translation of the Bible sets out to be old-fashioned. There are some that sound a little old-fashioned to us now because they've been around for so long. 
But when they were first translated, they weren't old-fashioned. That was the way people talked. Or uh, a little bit differently, sometimes in earlier ages, the English translators intentionally translated in a way that followed the syntax, the word order of the Hebrew or the Greek, so that maybe no one really spoke that way. The King James Bible, for example, from the early 1600s, follows a very literal arrangement of the words. And at the time, that's not really the way people spoke English. It just reflected the Hebrew and the Greek very accurately. And because it became so influential, that actually influenced the way we speak English and the rhythm of our English, which is kind of interesting. So just to understand some of the translations that we think of as being very uh, old-fashioned are not really translated to be old-fashioned. They just sound that way to us because either it's been a long time or because their translation philosophy is a little bit different than we would expect today. Here's the funny thing. If you could go back in time 1,500 years or so to the days of Augustine, so let's say the 400s AD, Augustine complains that there are so many Bible translations. He's like, there's just so many translations of the Bible, it's hard to know which one is the best one. If it was a problem then, no telling what Augustine would think if he were alive today. But the question he asks is really good. How can I tell which one is the best translation? And the funny thing is, his advice is not to settle on one translation as the best. Instead, he gives, I think, really good advice on what to do about all of these Bible translations. Here's what he says. He says that you should learn as much as you can of the original languages, that you should always read everything you read in context. You know, get the big picture, read the the sentence, the paragraph, the chapter, because when you do that, it makes it a lot harder to misunderstand things. And then, he says, use multiple translations. Compare the literal ones and the figurative ones to each other. And by doing that, you can triangulate the meaning of the original text much more easily. And that is good advice today. So when you're reading the Bible, it's always a good idea to compare translations, to go back and forth, and that'll give you a sense of whether or not you understand the actual meaning of what you're reading. Sometimes it's good when you're reading to try to put it into your own words to make sure that you grasp what is being said. I know that the fact there are so many different translations can be really frustrating, but On the whole, I think it's not a bad thing that we have these options. In fact, I think it's quite good. It can be really helpful for us to have so many options at our disposal. And it's a good reminder as well that the inspired words of God are the original, not the translations. And you want to be careful about treating the translations as if they are infallible when it's the originals that God inspired.
As always, we'd like to wrap up with some fun questions. Today we have some questions from Lydia and Caleb. This is Lydia's question. What is your favorite character in the Bible besides Jesus and God? Again, it is so hard to choose favorites. There are so many good ones that you can choose, but I'll give you two. First of all, I've always had a soft spot for the prophet Elijah. I think the prophet Elijah is very relatable. Like I love his sense of humor when he's mocking the priests of Baal and said, shout louder, maybe Baal is sleeping, that sort of thing. I love that. And I can also relate to Elijah's depression when he thinks he's all alone and following God. Despite the great wonders that God has performed through him, he is very uh, fearful still, very human in that way. He has to rely on God's strength because of his own weakness. And, and all of that I find really relatable about Elijah. And of course, the Apostle Peter is another one who is very, very relatable. I've said this before, but Peter strikes me as one of those people who says out loud what everybody else is afraid to say. And you need people like that in your life, people who have a boldness of expression, people who will ask the questions. And, and even if they're wrong in their assumptions, they will blurt it out and sometimes have to be corrected. But it's so good to have someone willing to be open in that way and pursuing the truth in that way. So in the Old Testament, I love Elijah. And in the New Testament, I love Peter for those reasons. Our last question is from Caleb, and it's a pretty practical one. He asks, how can people coming for the first time get questions answered? Great question, Caleb. So the questions I answer on this podcast come from Grace's Youth Chronicle. When you come into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning at the table right by the doors, we always have the Youth Chronicle available. If you grab one of those, there's a section inside that says, Question for Pastor Mark. You can write your question there, and when you turn that Youth Chronicle in, eventually those questions will come to me. And then I put all the questions together, and I take them a few at a time, and I answer them. I do it a few at a time for a reason. So there's always suspense. You always have to ask yourself, when will my question come up? What week will my question appear? And, and who will ask this week's big question? Caleb, thanks for asking that. And I want to encourage everyone listening to ask whatever questions you have, write them in the Youth Chronicle, and I will deal with them in future episodes. that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.